this time I've invited in what, what might be one of the unknown heroes of the Norse web, <laughs> at least in in my kind of world, Joseph Hopkins, who is the um, the man behind the uh, quite amazing homepage memesbrunner.org. Uh, I'm in Seattle, Washington, way up in the northwestern part of the United States on the uh, Pacific Ocean. I'm in Seattle, Washington, and I operate uh, the website uh, memesbrunner.info. Uh, Mimi's Brunner developed out of a student society uh, at the University of Georgia while I was studying uh, Germanic studies and philology, which in my case is uh, historical linguistics and folklore studies with a focus on uh, the Germanic languages. Uh, outside of that, I also edit for a uh, peer-reviewed journal based out of the University of Helsinki, uh, which is RMN newsletter. Cool. Awesome. So uh, before I start with some... <laughs> ah, ah, ah. Got a little bit of beer on my love, my microphone. Anyway, <laughs> cheers, Joseph. <laughs> and then this uh, little chapter of the uh, um, invisible aspects uh, of the uh, reception of uh, Nordic tradition. Because uh, I think that, uh, that you've presented me in different situations with some really sort of surprising and very awesome perspectives on that stuff. Um, and one particular uh, one particular uh, thing that you've been talking about is that there are actually uh, aspects of the early sort of re-engagement and reception of uh, North European pre-Christian heritage that was uh, rooted in, that was politically rooted in the left wing. And that is the stuff that, that uh, people have uh, sort of forgotten in in the way that we see this this part of our history, can can, can you try to tell us a little bit about that? The uh, forgotten leftist <laughs> early reception of um, Nordic history. Sure. Yeah. So you know, this stuff has a long history of uh, you know analysis, uh, particularly in the nineteenth century, and uh, one of the um, most celebrated figures uh, out there that is not generally associated with ancient Germanic studies. Um, unfortunately, is William Morris. You know, he died in uh, 1896. Morris was a polymath. Uh, he was English. He uh, is best known today, perhaps for the wallpaper uh, that he produced, these like floral, floral motifs that you see all over the place. But uh, he also did um, quite a lot of uh, translating, actually, with um, uh, an Icelandic scholar. Um, it was Eirik uh, Magnusson, right? And uh, one of the most, uh, uh, one of my favorite things that came out of this was his translation of uh, uh, Saga of the Vol Songs, right? Uh, he did a really, really fantastic lyrical translation of that. Uh, I believe it was published by Kilmscott Press, which is, which is his press, uh, Morris's press. And uh, it's, a, it's a fantastic translation. It's really, really um, kind of tough to read nowadays because of its uh, fondness for things like uh, semicolons, you know? But once you get into that mood, you get into this like, well, my experience was that I got into a very trance-like state with it and uh, was really, really taken with Morris's style. Um, outside of that, Morris also wrote uh, fiction. He wrote a, uh, a fantasy novel uh, called uh, uh, The House of the Wolfings, for example, that would go on to have a pretty big influence on Tolkien. But, you know, as you mentioned, Morris's politics were pretty different from Tolkien's. Tolkien, of course, was a very right-wing guy in many ways. You know, he's uh, uh, could be described as fascist, actually, particularly around the uh, Spanish Civil War when he supported the uh, uh, the nationalists in that case. So um, really, really interesting topic, uh, really interesting figure, uh, particularly the just sheer uh, variety of things that that Morris did, um, particularly late in, later in life with his focus on uh, like Icelandic mm -hmm. literature. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I, I think even like as a backdrop for talking about William Morris, I think that the incredible impact and position of Tolkien is probably, I mean, it's, it's something about it that's so mind-boggling. If, if you are a, like, apparently Tolkien was really taken up by the hippie movement in the, in, the, in, the, in the 70s, right? And when you read The Lord of the Rings, it really reads as this very strong sort of nostalgic affirmation of the class 
society. I mean, you have Frodo and Sam that represent sort of the, the I don't know if you would say the nobleman and the, the servant, and, and they're very hierarchical and sort of classically hierarchical relationship is sort of, that is sort of the bond that kind of makes everything work out in the end. It, it's it, it, And I, I've always been thinking, why did the hippies love that so much? It's, it's And and now I haven't even gotten into talking about the this whole idea about evil and and evil human-like persons who get dehumanized to a point where Tolkien's heroes kind of behave towards them like SS Einsatzgruppen in the 1940s Poland, something like that. But but uh, I, I mean there, there are and talking about that, we haven't even gotten into the fact that sort of the racial features typically ascribed to uh to Tolkien's um, bad human beings, you know, <laughs> and so, so, so it's, it, it's. I mean, w when you think about how how enormous of an impact Tolkien's had in, also in my, I mean, I, when I was like a teenager, I was also like reading the Silmarillion, and you know, yeah. almost as if it was a Bible, and and these things, uh, <laughs> and uh, and it, it's quite incredible that that the impact when you sort of align it with the, the actual politics. But but tell us a little bit more about this William Morris because I mean I never even heard the name before you uh, you mentioned it. Yeah, uh, well, um, you know, outside of fiction and wallpaper and stuff, he, Morris was producing quite a lot of stuff. You know, his circle was really hyper creative. Uh, arts and crafts movement uh, developed out of that circle as well. It would go on to uh, have a big influence on like um, you know Jugendstil. Uh, Art Nouveau, these movements, um, I'd say Morris has had a tremendous influence, you know, but of course, we don't think about those literary aspects uh, quite as much. House of, House of the Wolfings uh, was, for example, about the Goths, you know, that's historical fiction, basically, that was not in this really like um, monarchist perspective that you see with the stuff with uh, the Tolkien produced generally, you know, Tolkien's personal politics come out really strongly in his work as well, but they're so uh, opposite to Morris's in many ways, uh, with the exception on, you know, with the exception of a focus on the past as some sort of ideal in a way you know both of them had a, a pretty strong um, rejection of uh, industrialization or at least the horrors of industrialization that they themselves uh, witness you know the environmental damage and so on so there are some parallels in that regard both of them had this sort of uh, environmental focus uh, in their personal beliefs also. so yeah it's true you know, this environmentalist aspects of talking as well i also think by the way that that when we talk about the the criticism of industrialization and modernity um yeah. There's a famous uh, definition of fascism often being shared on uh, on the internet by Umberto Eco, where he one of his defining features of fascism is criticism of modernity, and right. I just so disagree with that. I I think it's like I mean, if you have a indigenous queer activist, then that is criticism of modernity, you know, and and uh, and uh, if, if you have. Uh, If you have King Leopold of Belgium and the atrocities inflicted on the Congo, then that is high modernism. It's high. I mean, I, I really so so strongly disagree with the the. Um, also, uh, you sometimes find the idea that romanticism is necessarily sort of tied in with 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 Nazism, and I, I again a thing that I find is absolutely incorrect. Uh, I think the the American. Uh, the American School of Anthropology is a symbol, is an example of that. The American School of Anthropology was uh, romanticist in its inception, and uh, this is probably the most progressive school of understanding culture of any school of culture that has existed in the last 150 years. But basically, I don't know, 50 years at least in front of the European apologists and sociologists in terms of respect for other cultures and. So, but can you tell me a little bit, what about uh, William Morris and, and uh, was it called the Wolf Links? H how does the, the leftist politics, how, how's that visible in his engagement with, with uh, the Nordic or Germanic past? Probably uh, just, just what Morris chose to focus on more than anything else. You know, it's easy, you know, the corpus is so big, the, the Germanic corpus is, is actually quite gigantic at the end of the day. It is, it is truly staggering how huge it is. And uh, you can pick and choose this and that to make whatever political statement you want in the modern era. You know, for example, 
uh, rarely is it discussed, you know, Fenya and Minya, these uh, workers who rise up to overthrow their uh, uh, ruler who is mistreated, mm-hmm. you know, um, I think, uh, for example, Victor Reidberg uh, had some focus on this uh, at one point or another, but that rarely gets discussed nowadays. Instead, mm-hmm. it is, it is, you know, often, everything is often uh, presented in this really right wing area or, or the problems of things are, are discussed, you know, what is conceived of as a problem for today, rather than other things that uh, are, are not so problematic. You know, for example, these two, for those of you who are unfamiliar with this particular uh, complex of narratives, uh, essentially you have these um, uh, these Jotnar uh, females who are mighty and strong and they're being exploited for their labor, basically, uh, at least in, in a few different variations of this. And they rise up and overthrow um, their abuser. You know, hmm. uh, don't hear much about this. You know, there's labor, there's labor involved with this. There's gender uh, uh, issues here. Uh, and uh, that's really interesting to a lot of people. But instead, you end up with, for example, figures like Tolkien fixating on ideas of kings, you know, hereditary rulership, all sorts of odd other things. And, you know, I think that's pretty revealing um, uh, about the individual's own beliefs and interests. You know, Tolkien, (laughs) although he found an audience with what he wrote, uh, you know, I myself actually didn't read Tolkien until pretty late in life. Uh, I didn't get into like ancient dramatic studies from that. For me, uh, it was like subcultural stuff, you know, music and so forth. So when I encountered stuff like, oh, there's this fixation on kings. I'm the true king because I was born to be the king. You know, this sort of thing just goes completely hollow. It it rings very hollow to me. I just couldn't give the least, you know, I I don't care at all about this sort of thing. What's more interesting to me is uh, this lush and vibrant world, you know, this fixation on this, this enormous tree and the things that live on it and in it and uh, uh, the pain it suffers and the uh, strength it has as it continues to grow. You know, that to me is a much more Mm -hmm. uh, interesting image and, uh, you know, for example, uh, my own writings tend to f- fixate on these things, which is, uh, you know, a reflection of who I am as a person and, and my interests and values. So uh, with Morris's work, you know, you can really sense some of those, for example, um, socialist politics. And, uh, and well, he was obviously writing things that were explicitly socialist at the time. You know, he was a member of uh, a socialist uh, party in England then. Uh, yes, it, it's very much reflected in his focus on these, tri- you could say, quote, unquote, tribal focus in that house mm. of things, for example. The not having the Tolkien way, that that's or the Tolkien direction into Nordic studies. I didn't have that either because I had Nordic material before I met Tolkien. And and I actually discovered, I discovered the similarities myself because I, I, I knew the Nordic stories. And then when I met Tolkien, I saw that there was stuff, for instance, I read the, the Voluspar uh and uh, the bonus bar and, and and saw that there were names that were current so right. i actually wrote i wrote a school assignment on tolkien's inspiration in nordic mythology when i was like uh, mm-hmm. 14 years of my life <laughs> yeah <laughs> but, they, uh, um, all these uh, dwarf names and uh, all that stuff english and kind of what do you call it fantastic storytelling i would say today that there are uh, do you call it exponents, proponents, <laughs> proponents of this uh, this uh, literary trend? I mean, I think it has matured quite a lot from um, from Tolkien, for instance, and I think that Neil Gaiman, for instance, and um, I think her name is Susanna Clark, who did the uh, the Mister um, Jonathan Strange and Mister Norrell, Mister Norrell and Jonathan Strange. I think they bring engagement with Northern European traditional and animist realities to a completely different level, both of them. I think Neil Gaiman, uh, American Gods, this extremely eclectic reality where I almost that American Gods reinvents Odin in to become this almost authentically American figure in this very composed space. I, I totally love that vision that he's creating like that. Shoshana Clark with Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell is a very different thing, but I, I perceive that as much more real in its, for instance, its, its potential portrayal of these beings as deeply sexual and dangerous but but not evil right where in Tolkien you have this boyishly anti-erotic reality that's like out of some I don't know late Victorian boarding school I gotta say that really did put me off from from reading the text and there I'm sure many Tolkien fans are watching this and I, I to be clear there are things in Tolkien's work that I have also enjoyed like you know Tom Bobadil that's fucking cool Mary's uh, a river. I mean, that's very animistic, right? That's a really, really fascinating aspect that I really wish that Tolkien himself had embraced more. Uh, and this whole aspect of Tom Bobadil, interestingly enough, gets removed from quite a lot of stations of Tolkien's work, uh, right? It wasn't in, for example, the famous films uh, at all. 
all as I understand, not even the like extended versions. Uh, but yeah, the sexual aspect is also really interesting, how it is essentially ignored in mm. uh, Tolkien's work. Not exactly there in Morris's work either. I think it is a Victorian aspect uh, mm. of, uh, of things to avoid these topics, you know. On top of that, though, the record, the Germanic record is very sexual. The, mm. the deities very frequently uh, feature like erect penises. You know, we see depictions of uh, vulvas pretty commonly in, uh, uh, for example, the uh, so-called um, uh, bog uh, uh, pole gods, for example. Uh, I'm actually working on a piece for Memes Reader right now that discusses, you know, historic depictions of deities and uh, outlines them and so forth, uh, actually aimed at artists and also explaining uh, the approach that we have had to date on the website in uh, producing. Mm -hmm. When we post some of these articles uh, that we produce for Mimi's Bruner, um, sometimes we'll get feedback on the art, especially, you know, it's actually not mm -hmm. that often that we get a lot of feedback on the text itself, but more so on the art. And some of that feedback is pretty interesting to me. Uh, for example, uh, there is a piece on apples on the site and the, the motif of the apple in uh, an ancient Germanic context. And uh, there is something very sexual and erotic about the apple at the end of the day in the corpus. This association with fertility, this association with re reproduction. And so we wanted to represent this in the material. And actually we had a thun presented, you know, this goddess associated with apples in the North Germanic corpus. And apples actually as a, a goddess motif occurs much earlier with that as well. And among the early Germanic peoples on the Rhine, especially these, these depictions of mothers, these shrines, they're frequently holding baskets of, of what appear to be apples. Also apples are native to the region, crab apples that is. And, uh, you know, crab apples have a lot of use that we don't really think about today. Feedback we got is that the, the gods appeared to be too sexualized, which was uh, uh, really interesting to see uh, given the, the the record where the deities are very sexualized, you know, yeah. but the idea of uh, sexual symbolism is so different, most likely, than what we would see today. Mm. Especially think about it, when we talk about like having kids and so forth now, it's not because they're going to continue our legacy on a farm or something like this, you know, it's a different reality, our, our association with all of these things. We think of things mm. with this post-industrial mindset. Uh, it's a very different uh, approach. So I thought that was really fascinating. And, you know, this is partially because of the representation of these things in pop culture by way of mm. things like, you know, not only Tolkien, but also individuals such as Morris who were living in a society uh, or had particular beliefs where uh, it would be taboo to even mm. discuss. Oh, I know we've had uh, similar reactions uh, in the work of the Nordic Animist Calendar, where like the first year we came out, there was an image of a naked man on the front page. And uh, there were, of course, I mean, it was, it was pictures of tattoos throughout the first year of the calendar. So there was a lot of skin and we got both the criticism that went, I'm not going to have this gay stuff hang on my wall. And the criticism that said, you are the evil lackeys of patriarchy because you have uh, naked women in there. Kind of an extension of this. And that is the ascription of Nordic heritage to be associated with Nazism, where uh, where this is, this is it's an ongoing thing and still very conspicuous, very present part of how people associate uh, Nordic heritage. But what, uh, give me your perspective on the reasons for, for this ascription of Nordic heritage to Nazism. Yeah, sure. So, you know, my personal take on this is that this is. Um... It is grossly uh, overrepresented in media. Uh, I mean, let's let's say let's look at an example here. For example, um, you know, January sixth here in the United States, we had uh, a uh, should we put this a uh, invasion of the Capitol building by a group of very far right wing individuals, and the media fixated on one particular individual. We all know who that was. He was all over, uh, you know, uh, newspapers, all over media. Uh, this guy named uh, Jake and Jelly. He had the uh, headdress on, and he was painted up, and uh, in particular. Particular, there was a fixation on his tattoo. So he had uh, a couple tattoos of interest here. One was, of course, uh, a Thor's hammer, right? Or what appeared to be a Thor's hammer. And the other was a tree motif, which is pretty widespread on the internet that evidently represented Yggdrasil. It's kind of unclear. But uh, he himself, of course, it would later turn out, was uh, a Christian, some sort of mystic Christian. And the vast majority of imagery used during this rally, which led to this invasion of the Capitol, this riot, was, in fact, usually just the typical, like, like, you know, very far right wing Christian stuff we see, as well as uh, things associated with firearms, you know, and militias. Almost none of this has anything whatsoever to do with ancient things. But the media fixated on these very exotic symbols on this one particular individual mm. during this. I think it's really easy, for example, for um, entities to fixate on what seems ex exotic or, or other and sort of shift blame and focus to those things rather than sort of looking in the mirror and seeing themselves in it. You yeah. know what I mean? Uh, particularly when something 
something, for example, so mainstream as, you know, uh, Christianity in the United States is so strongly associated yeah. with these extreme far right wing groups. Um, it's much more, uh, uh, it's much safer to focus mm. on these outliers, I think, at the end of yeah. the day. It's you know, much that easier. Is, it's yeah, more exactly. entertaining and it's less challenging for mm. great, the broad public watching. If they are giving a recognizable other that uh, to associate with this, well, attack on symbols of American democracy in this case, that is much more easy. It's much more easy narrative than to have to look into yourself and say, okay, so we're North American Protestants and we're white middle class and perhaps we even voted for Donald Trump. And perhaps there's something that we need to look at. It's much easier to externalize with some uh, exotic other. Could probably be associated with the, the way that general white media and production culture have been looking at Afro-descendant religions as sort of icons of the demonic and the uh, primitive and, and all these things. The, 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 and, and these perspectives on other that white people have tended to have towards particularly Africans, they have they have also in the European space been reflected onto European animist traditions. So if if European colonizers went to Africa and saw specific animist practices and named that fetishism and that's a bad and stupid thing or whatever, then they would go back and then they would see what the peasants in countryside in Portugal or Sweden or wherever what they did, which was more or less the same, and then they would say, oh, this is fetishism like the Africans are doing. So so there's this sort of mirroring between if we can compare these two things, then we are devalue, reducing them to devalue each other, so to say. So, so, uh, and I think there's there's something uh, something similar going on with this. Yeah, I think so too. It, it, you know, it's ultimately rooted from this idea of the evolution of religion. You know, mm. that the that the idea that it uh, that there's this primitive state that develops into what becomes essentially, of course, conveniently, uh, modern forms of monotheism, and particularly yeah. given you know, particularly. Uh, this American form of uh, Protestant, you know, Christianity. Mm -hmm. And for, you know, there's, there's some hard questions here as to why uh, this isn't being focused on more in these circles and instead why we fixate on these like fringe groups rather mm. than the broader groups that are, you know, actually causing all these issues. Mm. Mm. Uh, I think it's a really good question. And particularly, you know, this isn't the first time this has happened, uh, particularly uh, after World War II. You know, my grandfather fought in World War II. Uh, he was an American soldier. He lost his hand in uh, Belgium. Uh, so it was a personal period for me. I spent a lot of time, you know, researching it. And, uh, uh, you know, my family history is so closely entwined with these topics. And uh, not too long ago, I wrote an article uh, about the uh, symbol of the Airman Soul, right? And about how it is used in, uh, for example, neo pagan circles today with some circles you know and most people who use it have no idea that it was this uh, symbol that popped up you know right before uh well during the nazi germany period and how it became a, a sort of institutionalized during that era in certain groups certain segments of nazi germany it was never truly a really widespread symbol but mm. in any but what was a widespread symbol was uh you know the cross i mean uh, mm. nazi germany was a thoroughly christian nation completely and nazi germany never would have existed were it not for the collaboration of these powerful institutions, uh, including religious institutions in uh, Germany at the time. Uh, and I think it's a really important point, you know, there's a lot of fixation in media on these like occult aspects of uh, uh, Nazi Germany, for example, as if these small groups of people had some sort of extreme power uh, over everyone. And that's what led to these great, great evils that we so associate uh, mm -hmm. with that time period in that place, right? But the reality is that, uh, you know, by and large, uh, these were, you know, everyday people uh, who mm -hmm. were you know, deeply Christian, yeah. uh, however they yeah. may have defined that, and uh, did all these horrible things, you know, uh, with that in mind, you know, there mm. wasn't some sort of cabal of uh, mm. Germanicists or anything like that pulling mm. the strings, mm. you know, nobody was really, uh, there was not some great paganism mm. or anything remotely close to that at the end of the day during mm. this era. Uh, there was uh, this uh, folkish uh, uh, focus here and there on these ancient symbols, which are usually by way of some sort of filter, you know, this uh, uh, stuff from uh, Guido von List, you know, these particular runes that were invented in the 19th century and then uh, mm. spread mm. widely, as mm. well as just completely wild shit, you know, um, mm. focus on uh, 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 zoology and, you know, just completely. Mm out there stuff that yeah, we see yeah. so much attention in yeah. media, whereas in everyday stuff, what? <laughs> yeah. So I think there's a reckoning to be had there about yeah, these yeah. things. Uh, and and even, even I think the, the uh, swastika was a symbol of the Aryan race in the theosophic 
philosophy by Madame Blavatsky with some inspiration from the uh, Tibetan Buddhism or something like that. And that is the way that that symbol came into Nazism, if I'm not mistaken. Theosophy, the theosophical idea of the return of the Aryan race symbolized by the swastika. So it it wasn't because anybody was looking at any flipping Iron Age fractures. Maybe they did that afterwards and was like, okay, so here, but but that was the actual path of that symbol. If I, but so my understanding, uh, I I think what you see here is like a, uh, a variety of sources sort of converging to produce what is essentially a, you know, a very simple symbol at the end of the day, you know, a, quite a lot of this, this symbol particularly has had quite a lot of fixation, you know, a lot of people have fixated on this symbol mm. for a reason, but the reality is that it is a super, super simple symbol that uh, a grade schooler, for example, could, could come up with, you know, just out of nowhere with no prior exposure, you know, not to say that, you know, grade schoolers are unintelligent, mm. but just would not necessarily need that outside input to mm. be an end thing to produce this super, super symbol as a scribble. For example, we see mm. it all over the world. Um, so I, I, I don't know if there's a single point of influence that led to that symbol being uh, employed in that manner. I mean, it used to be really, really common to encounter um, swastikas. And today you can still encounter swastika-like symbols mm. being used for, by like banks and stuff as mm. their logo, you know what I mean? But, uh, you know, of course this is widespread in the ancient Germanic record, but it's so it was also widespread in the ancient Greek record, mm. you know, over the place. That doesn't mean that it came from a proto-Indo-European um, origin or anything like that. I think it was just an extremely widespread mm. symbol. But the point I'm making is sure. that early, perhaps proto-Nazi thinking and mysticism, they would probably have been inspired by theosophy because they had, and now I remember exactly the symbol that in theosophy, it's a circle with a swastika inside. And that is a symbol of the Aryan race in theosophy, in Madame Blavatsky's thinking. So, uh, and she got, and she built that stuff i i'm pretty sure she built that stuff in her either real or imaginary engagement with tibetan buddhism but yeah, anyway i think it's just a symbol that had a lot of like spiritual associations and then there was this you know notion that it had something to do with the aryan race or something which you know all this stuff is nowadays just considered total nonsense you know and at the time i think uh most uh people who had you know were grounded would have also considered it to be nonsense at the end of the Mm. day too so uh it's kind of hard to say this i'm not exactly sure exactly how this went down but of course uh, it is widespread in the ancient germanic record uh Mm. all over the place and um but it's Mm. also widespread pretty much Mm. everywhere yes but but um i mean i totally follow you when you say that when we look at Nazi Germany, the Third Reich, as yeah. a, as an, an active functioning entity that's creating a Second World War and so on, then of course we're talking about tens of millions of Germans being involved, and they have they come into this with their Protestant and their Catholic uh, and their Social Democrat actually ideas about the world, and then they engage in in, in National Socialism. But didn't it have didn't it have an important inspiration in the early days of the movement from people like really good and Guido von List and the Tula Society and, and all these these things, didn't they play a rather important role in the early stages uh, of this movement? You know, as far as I understand, well, there was obviously the influence, but I think I think something that is more important to emphasize here is this this uh, focus on nationalism more broadly, mm. and, uh, as well as, you know, uh, the embracing of totalitarianism uh, as a concept, uh, fascism, you know, these mm. things, at the end of the day, however you want to dress it up, whether it's some sort of, you know, reaching into the past, for whatever reason, uh, this is what it all amounted to, you know, mm. and there are other aspects of influence here too, uh, mm. you know, I don't think, for example, um, ascribing all these things to like occult influence gets us anywhere. I mean, they're wearing mm. Uh, you know, Prussian motifs uh, that read Gott mit uns on the belt buckles everywhere they go. You know, there was no embracing of uh, uh, Woden or anything like this by uh, Wehrmacht or anything. You know, I think that is just way overplayed. Um, and you know, some of this, no doubt, comes from uh, there's ton- so much collaboration occurred, uh, particularly among religious groups uh, who would then hope to be uh, rehabilitated. You know, some of this occurred too by American forces. Uh, you know, uh, uh, Brown uh, was a major part of the American uh, uh, rocket program, which would lead to for example, uh, NASA. Uh, so it, it's a complicated, complex thing. Mm. And then, you know, yeah. afterwards, too, there was the uh, um, Cold War and the uh, general fight against communism across the world. So, you know, these are huge, sweeping mm. topics and massive yeah. amounts of different uh, input points. You know, mm. we're talking about millions and millions of people and 
almost none of them had absolutely anything to do with this idea of the occult, yeah. you know, yeah. To yeah. constantly hark yeah. back that the Nazis were pulling from dark powers and that these dark powers were like runes or something is just the height of uh, fictional nonsense, you know. Mm -hmm. These yeah. are massive uh, uh, levels of, of history, uh, layers of history coming together to form this sort of mm. uh, industrial uprising. And of course, none of this would be possible really without industrialization either. You know, mm. uh, the idea of a, a gun that can kill hundreds of people is very much a, a result of industrialization. So mm. I think there are many factors here and to sort of the point, my point is that simplifying things, distilling them down and then sort of attributing them to some sort of fixation on prehistory mm. is... Uh, absolutely simplifying things and letting a totally. lot of people hook totally i think i think it's i think it's an awesome point you make and uh, uh when we are talking about thinking about the specifically the uh the the occult uh aspects like those little groups that were actually there why are nobody thinking about your glance who was christian mystic and rooted uh nazi arianism and master race ideology very specifically and very powerfully in christian thinking he had this whole idea about uh, uh christ's uh symbolizing the arian race and the grail receiving the blood of christ was the Aryan blood. And he was writing, if I remember correctly, he was writing a kind of a journal that was that was uh, distributed among these. And this was like in the very, very early day of the days of the nationalist movement, uh, national socialist movement. Uh, excuse me? The journal Astara. Yo, Zoo, uh, what did you call it? This like uh, really wild, uh, completely French stuff. Uh, this focused on uh, human animals and stuff like this. It's like, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but no, I think I think it's an awesome point that this uh, as, this association with with Nazism as the great evil other of the 20th century is then associated with an iconic image of other, which is the those religiosities that have been that have been basically uh, rejected by Christianity, and 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 that there are so many interests, probably as you say, a super complex sort of landscape of interest that just play into. So you mentioned the Cold War. People, uh, people are, want to resist uh, communism. Well, they perceive uh, Christianity as a bastion against uh, communism. So they need to acquit Christianity of association with uh, with Nazism, and they do that if they associate it with uh, with uh, Germanic occultism or this weird being of Germanic occultism. And then I think what's happening is that this image then almost takes on a life, a life of its own and it becomes a thing a little bit like almost a little bit like witches mm -hmm. is really the figure of the witch is really a figure of other that which that which confronts social values mm -hmm. but then that is so consolidated that people who actually want to confront social values they can identify with it so today you have a, a landscape of different kinds of also nationalists identifying with uh with um uh, this germanicist occultist yeah i mean they're out there but there are very few of them in comparison yeah. to the individuals who do things like for example storm the united states cap uh, yeah point. yeah i think it's yeah. you know this consistent you know we see this currently for example QAnon is a good example of this it's essentially an extension of the satanic panic you know mm. this idea that there are these forces out there and there are others and they're working against us and uh, they are, you know, it's it's this common complex of motifs that we see. And anything mm. to do with the quote-unquote occult uh, is usually what is uh, scapegoated for these things. No matter how small mm. and uninfluential these groups of people mm. are, you know, they are relentlessly uh, seen as these great pullers of strings, you know. Mm. And uh, oftentimes, uh, the problem, you know, there's no reality it's mm. based on nothing uh, at all it's it's a convenient scapegoat yeah. so that hard questions don't need to be asked uh, at the yeah. end of the day in my opinion yeah. so the the uh, the script uh, the ascription of reception of nordic heritage to ultra right decisions is in itself you could almost say it's a way of maintaining those structural or deep cultural uh, systems that actually maintain the uh, some of those problems that produce situations such as, as the, the Trumpist movements and all these things. I certainly think so. You know, uh, the thing is, a lot of these topics are ultimately very obscure. You know, mm. uh, the idea of ancient Germanic anything, most people have no 
familiarity with these things whatsoever. Yeah. Although they do encounter extensions of these things in their daily life, you know, the names of mm. the, you know, personal names, the names of the weekdays and so forth. It is there, you know, um, mm. Thor films by Marvel, whatever, but they're not thinking about them in this context. I think also interesting, you know, and this, this will hit close to home with you, the invasion of uh, Denmark by Germany. You know, that's mm. a really fascinating topic in terms of ancient Germanic studies because, mm. uh, you know, Denmark, uh, I, I lived in Denmark for an extended period, as you know, in um, Aarhus, uh, Copenhagen, Tissel for uh, quite a while and uh, encountering these like, you know, statues and depictions of uh, uh, North Germanic deities uh, all over the place and references to them. And then uh, encountering this uh, Nazi Germany propaganda telling, uh, you know, the Danes that they need to get in line uh, with, you know, it's just, it, mm. it's our outrageous to think, uh, to be told, you know, I can only imagine uh, the resentment uh, among, uh, you know, everyday Danes at the time uh, during all this. Yeah, yeah, no, th there was a, there was actually a case where a fibulae was found uh, in, during the Second World War, during the uh, German occupation. I forgot the name of this fibulae, but, but uh, an Iron Age fibulae, and it had a very clear marked swastika on it, and like with broad square line, it totally looked like a German swastika. Uh, uh, and the archaeologists hit it. They they just they just oh man we don't want, we don't we don't want to see them talk about this. So they just they just put it in a box and waited until the war is over. Um, so uh, and and yeah. And, but I also think that the this particular uh, confrontation means that Nordic heritage in Denmark and Norway has not been as associated with uh, Nazism as, for instance, in Germany. In Germany, I think wearing runes on a, a T-shirt in a public place could be almost you can almost experience a problem. But of course, you can't you you're not going to experience a problem with that in Denmark. Yeah, I think I thought that was really fascinating, uh, and especially you know a, a lot of I think your audience for this is going to be, for example, Americans who haven't spent any time in Scandinavia or, and perhaps not in Germany. You know, the, the cultural difference between these two regions when it comes to um, Germanic prehistory is really, really marked. You know, like you said, mm -hmm. this stuff can be seen with some level of suspicion or uh, politicization in Germany in ways that it will not in, for example, uh, Denmark or Sweden or, you know, Norway. Uh, not at all. You know, you can, of mm -hmm. course, go to uh, a museum gift shop and get an Algas rune uh, necklace. <coughs> Uh, for your, you know, for a child or something, you know, or, mm. or a Swillow rune, uh, you know, that looks just like the uh, 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 SS bolts or something, yeah. <laughs> which is just, in Germany, yeah. it's like, yikes, but uh, yeah, you go yeah. up a bit and the stuff is everywhere. Mm. Uh, and I think that's also important. It gets, it, the Scandinavian reception really gets lost in this conversation, you know, mm. uh, stuff is not nearly as marked uh, yeah. in Scandinavia as it is uh, elsewhere in the world and the yeah. reception of two uh, for example uh, the influence of uh, Wagner you know mm. uh, is not nearly as marked in Scandinavia there was already mm. a sort of uh, history of depictions of these deities uh, in the modern era that mm. did not exist elsewhere so yeah. uh, Valkyries yeah. with you know winged helmets and stuff uh, you're not going to see a lot of that in mm. uh, uh, national romantic art or anything like that mm. you know in art instead they'll be wearing like little uh, bronze age inspired jewelry and things like that there's definitely mm. a divergence um, yeah. that has occurred yeah. in these two lines yeah. of we we also there's also um, there's also aspects of Danish nationalism and I'm, I was almost tempted to use the words folkism that 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 points in different direction uh, because the uh, pastor uh, 19th century pastor Grundtvig who very much defined the uh, the Danish nationalism uh, he uh, he actually produced a kind of folkism uh, however this folkism and I mean I haven't studied the details of but the, the 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 people or the, the folk was actually defined inclusively by Quantum. He said he said he belongs to the people who regards himself thereof. So it was it was a it was a, a folkism, and it has produced super problematic aspects, and and Islamophobia is rampant in Denmark. There's a lot of actually nationalist problems. However, there's also another aspect of the Quantum tradition or Christianity in, in inside the Christian uh, space. That has actually become a rather leftist and very inclusive Christianity. This is the kind of Christianity that will that will talk about inclusion as the main tenet of Christianity. A kind of Christianity that will have ecumenical contact with uh, Muslim um, uh, congregations. Uh, it's it's a hippie turned kind of Christianity today, and 
it was also back in the day, it was also a kind of Christianity that was heavily involved with, uh, no, no, uh, let me not say heavily involved. It was involved. It was somehow involved with the emergence of the uh, the cooperative movement that uh, that was uh, quite powerful in, in the 19th century. So there there are these, and oh yeah, I should wind back and say this before I started talking about Grundtvig. Grundtvig was extremely uh, inspired by Nordic mythology. And he talked about the Edda, the Eddas as basically the Old Testament of Northern Europe. So Grundvidians traditionally has sort of jumped over their own shadows to look for prophecies of Jesus and so on in the Elder Edda and also in the Prose Edda and so on. So, the, so, so there, there are complexities that are somehow very different from, the, for instance, what you'd see in Germany. So for sure. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, uh, Grunvig's influence is, is tremendous. You know, uh, in the U.S., we have uh, folk schools, for example. Uh, these frequently have a, a fixation on like Scandinavian woodworking and things like this. And they take a really different form in the U.S. than they do in, uh, for example, Denmark, um, where here it's mostly like craft stuff, like woodworking or like cabin building and stuff like this. Uh, there's actually a really great one in uh, Joseph, Oregon, um, uh, that I was uh, near just a couple weeks ago. Hmm. Uh, they're all over the place, and uh, they are usually some way or another associated with, well, at least the concept, the Grunvig's concept of the folk school okay if no, not I, uh christianity yeah. or anything else, you have no association with any religious yeah. anything no i find that very very fascinating I, I think that often i've been thinking that the, the folk high school which this is the kind of high school that grundvig invented and he invented this in the 19th century because monarchy was was uh being replaced by democracy and he didn't believe that common people like peasants in peasantry in denmark that they were able to handle democracy. He didn't believe that they were able to, to relate to such complex and important um, questions about how to distribute power and so on. So he basically resolved that in order to deal with that problem, we have to educate everyone. <laughs> so there, there was a, and this started a countrywide, and with time it was actually region-wide, this reached into all of Scandinavia, basically movement of popular adult education. Everybody went to, uh, to folk high school. It's called folk high school in Denmark. And today the, the folk high schools, they are, they're still there, uh, but they are, and they're still very sort of, involved with politics they when you go to many of them but not not in a sort of party line kind of way we vote for these or that but many of them are like focused on media how to deal with media how to deal with journalism and they have very different profiles of course some of them will be sports or whatever but i think a good chunk of them are sort of very engaged in, in, in contemporary issues different sorts. And I've seriously been thinking that that particular movement that Grundvig invented, we need that today again, because Grundvig invented that at a point where we were before entering into enlightenment, but now we are slipping out of enlightenment again. People are living inside crazy fantasy worlds and conspiracy theories and weirdnesses, and uh, they're losing the tools they need in order to to basically deal in a responsible and mature mature way with democracy. And that's eroding democracy. It's a very serious threat to democracy. And I think the four years of, of uh, this completely, insanely grotesque figure that you had in the United States here with Donald Trump, that's a really good example of it. And I think the part of the medicine could be uh, a folk high school movement brought uh, from Scandinavia and also now to other places in the world. Something's got to happen. You know, uh higher education in the United States is uh, a disaster right now, particularly. I myself have tremendous student debt to this day, you know, mm. for something that uh, is really mandatory for, uh, you know, many, many positions in the United States. Mm. And uh, to make that, well, it's no, it's no, it is no um, overstatement to say that schools operate as businesses uh, in mm. the United States, these, these colleges and universities, and uh, more and more of this stuff becomes out of reach for everyday people. Uh, mm. Without a populist turn, without a focus on making this stuff affordable, it's never going to get any better. You know, yeah. most people yeah. would never consider a degree in the humanities nowadays, you know, and if they do, they're really, well, they will think that they're really putting their neck out there, whether that's the reality or not, you know, given yeah. Uh, yeah. trends that continue with uh, the job market. You know, I myself actually didn't continue uh, along the uh, traditional academic path because uh, I knew that it would end up 
up with, no matter how well I did or, or what came of it, I would probably end up living out of my car eating like instant ramen, you know, and I've eaten way too much instant ramen in my life to consider that a possibility. <laughs> so I went into the private sphere and uh, focused on things like, you know, content production, um, uh, things related to this, you know, content management, where you can actually use uh, these skills, like even things like historical linguistics uh, can be applied uh, to, to that profession. Uh, anyone who continues in this, you know, I wish them luck, but uh, there is likely not um, a sustainable uh, path forward for, for most students, unfortunately. So something like a folk school, you know, something, just something has to give and mm. uh, it just can't continue this way. Mm. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I take anyway. um, this, this uh, folk, do you call it folk school? You don't call it folk high school. In no, it's just called folk school. Yeah. Folk school. Okay. Um, yeah. I went myself to a Sami folk high school back in the mid '90s in deep Finnmarken, where I actually, I actually uh, uh, tried to learn the Sami language. So that was, and and that was that belonged to a the the governing Sami uh, Christian congregation, which is called Lestadianism, Lestadianism, which is a horrid uh, kind of fanatical. Uh, pietist Protestantism. So uh, that was a little bit of a that was a little bit of a tough job uh, when you come from when you come from Danish uh, sort of high school background and you smoking pot and drinking beers and going to rock festivals and then all right. of a sudden you're like in in, <laughs> in Arctic you know <laughs> extreme right. pietism. <laughs> but um, yeah. Yeah, even, you know, even uh, growing up in Georgia, which is where I'm from, North Georgia, which is, you know, very deeply in the Bible Belt and was, you know, like the heart of the Confederacy uh, during that era. Yeah. Uh, then going to Denmark, it's just like, whoa, this is a, this is a different kind of life. And uh, <laughs> I can only imagine the culture shock uh, that you experience. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, uh, the, uh, this, also, this uh, issue of folk schools and so on, this also uh, leads me to another thing that you've been talking about sometimes. That is the, the Scandinavian heritage in the U.S. Like you're living now in, this is called Cascadia in, in Cascadia, the north. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, can you tell me a little bit about the, the, uh, this, uh, this, this area and the traditions of, of uh, unions and folk schools from Scandinavia, how they, they have uh, impacted the American sort of culture in, in the places where Scandinavians settled? Yeah, sure. Well, this is a, that's a pretty big topic. So let me see what I can contribute to it. You know, uh, well, to clarify, yeah, I'm here in Seattle and uh, Cascadia, for those of you who are unaware, is just the region's, um, just the region around the Cascadian mountain range. Right? Oh, sorry. Let me just say one thing before I continue. Sorry, Joseph. Just sure. because, just because now we're talking about this, this thing about the Scandinavian uh, pre-Christian heritage as associated with these these uh, outright attacks on democracy and so on. And sometimes you feel that there's a general identification of Scandinavian with the, the whiteness of whiteness almost, this ultra-white thing, because I don't know, perhaps because maybe have blonde hair in Sweden or whatever, but, but uh, so it's, it, it, so, and here again, I think your, your story is a bit of a counter image to that. Um, yeah, sorry. Oh. Yeah, so uh, the Cascade is a bioregion, you know, it's the, the mountains and the watershed around the mountains and so forth. Uh, but uh, the area is more commonly called the Pacific Northwest. You know, its major cities are Portland and Seattle. So uh, Portland, Oregon and Seattle, Washington state, that is. There's a lot of confusion uh, from those outside of the U.S., uh, the difference between Washington, D.C. and Washington state. They're completely different and in completely different parts of uh, the United States. So uh, here in Seattle, uh, we have a, a very high concentration of uh, uh, institutions and uh, um, references to a sort of uh, Scandinavian cultural heritage. Uh, probably the biggest uh, representation of this is the National Nordic Museum, uh, which is in Ballard, a neighborhood uh, here in Seattle. Uh, it is a very nice museum. I recommend you check it out. Uh, it's focused mostly on uh, the immigration of uh, uh, Scandinavians from well, into the Midwest and in the Pacific Northwest here in the United States, uh, where they are uh, very highly concentrated as opposed to the rest of the United States, right? 
Um, this region too is also really uh, strongly associated with uh, certain politics, particularly like leftist politics. You know, um, Portland, Oregon was in the news quite a lot for um, uh, pushback uh, against the Trump administration, for example, and uh, things like riots and so forth, you know, um, responses to uh, various events that have occurred in the United States without going into too much detail. But uh, you can see uh, references to this uh, heritage uh, often, um, often by way of references to uh, things like Norse mythology in just everyday life throughout this part of the country. Uh, for example, not only does Ballard have the National Nordic Museum, but it also has uh, a, um, a little park in an area called Golden Gardens, which features a stone ship of all things, uh, probably very one of very few stone ships outside of the uh, uh, Northern European uh, cultural sphere. Um, and for those of you who are unfamiliar with what this is, there's a, a, a type of Actually, you could say it's a symbol. It's kind of unclear exactly what they represented uh, of a, a sort of stone circle in the shape of a ship that you'll see very frequently in, uh, for example, in uh, northern Denmark, there's an area called uh, Lindholm Hoy, where there's an extreme concentration of these things. Uh, many, many, many of them in one specific area, but they're also in places like southern Sweden, etc. And they seem to be connected to boat burials. Well, uh, at some point, uh, I actually don't have the date on hand. Uh, a stone ship was erected on the beach here uh, facing the Pacific Ocean with a bunch of uh, motifs from um, everything from the Bronze Age up until the Viking Age from the region. And uh, it's in celebration of uh, Leif Erikson, actually. Uh, there's a statue of him there. So there's a lot of this sort of stuff, you know, um, some of it is more founded on history than others, but it generally is a reflection of, uh, you know, the immigrant experience here. Um, and of course, the Scandinavians were not the only immigrants in this region, I should say. Uh, there's a really high concentration of, for example, Japanese immigrants, um, as well as from China and so forth. It's a complex uh, tapestry. But for the purposes of our conversation here today, we'll just focus on uh, this uh, uh, as it relates to ancient Germanic studies. So, you know, um, certain bars around here have references to things like this one called Skull. There is uh, a building called the Valhalla building. Um, there are depictions of uh, various entities from Norse myth. There's a troll, a giant troll underneath a gigantic bridge here, for example, uh, with some billy goats nearby. Uh, yeah, this stuff is just all over the place uh, out here in the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. uh, as for how this is connected to things like leftist politics, well, um, there is a really well-known, well, well, perhaps not that well-known, uh, area of Astoria, Oregon, just to give you an example. Uh, where there was a really high concentration of Finns uh, who had uh, migrated there. It's called Uniontown. And uh, there was a really well-known um, socialist newspaper uh, published in Finnish uh, there, for example. So, you know, the Pacific Northwest is a really interesting region for a lot of reasons. And one of those reasons, I think, is the representation of uh, um, ancient Scandinavian culture by way of migrants. Um, I, 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 not so long ago, maybe a couple of years, I saw this uh, amazing Netflix series called uh, Damnation that uh, showed, I love these sort of history history flakes that take some period that, that you don't usually think think of. And it was, it was portraying a union blockade by farmers in Iowa in the 1930s or something like that. And... Um, and uh, uh, I remember that you have also been talking about this this thing about the American Union movement that it's it's sort of particularly strong in in, in yeah uh, well for example the Pacific Northwest has uh, in comparison at least to much of the U S uh, I would say a uh, pretty strong emphasis on unions if you mm -hmm. go to for example Olympia which is uh, where the capital of mm -hmm. Washington State is you'll see a lot of references to these in like just business windows you know proud union. Okay. In that okay. and um, you know also places like um, Minnesota, Wisconsin, in the Midwest, these places too have historically had really strong labor movements. Okay, okay. you know the history of labor in the United States is, is really really complex. It is uh, really interesting. Um, it impacts uh, everyone in the United States at the end of the day. You know the advances made by unions and um, just uh, works towards working towards better labor conditions more broadly. Mm. It's just a constant struggle in the United States, a constant hot topic, uh, as you mentioned. Of course, uh, readers may be interested, or viewers, I should say, may be interested in the situation in, in Denmark, which is so different than in the United States, where unionization and 
collectives and um, you know co-ops are are just commonplace in mm. just about every aspect of the economy. Uh, mm. Has that been your experience, Rune? So I don't know. Um, could you perhaps uh, end just uh, talking a little bit about your ongoing projects, uh, and then uh, then we can end it off. Just tell us about what you're doing right now. Sure. Yeah, uh, I'm working on a lot of stuff. Um, I do. Um, so uh, you're aware of Mimi's Burner, uh, as well as projects related to that. But um, cool. But uh, uh, let's. Uh, yeah, let's wrap it up and uh, just thank thank you very much, Joseph, for uh, uh, for joining me here. It was super nice to hear your um, your perspective. And uh, guys, everybody, uh, you should go into mimus info. The um, uh, the link is going to be somewhere in the video, and then uh, pull it into your browser saved links because that is really a very valuable resource i'm often trying to convince joseph here that he should stop giving away his knowledge like that and put it into a book because it's what he's putting on that the home page is much better than all all the shite that a lot of people are putting into books all the time so uh but now uh now you have one of the little secrets of the internet and that is that uh, joseph's work is some of the best stuff that's out there so uh thank you very much for uh joining me here.